Hi, I'm Bob Witte with KPND in Sandpoint, Idaho. If I can be a fan of Skylight Books, LA's world-famous independent bookstore, from way up here in the Idaho Panhandle, then you can too from wherever you are. Visit the website, buy some books. You can even join their membership club and reap the benefits of supporting independent booksellers. Thanks. softer side meet me on the softer side softer side of your heart hi there and welcome to the skylight books author reading series you can find out about this and all of our other author events at www.skylightbooks.com where you can also browse our inventory as well as order books online you can also follow us on Twitter or even be our friend at Facebook.com. If you'd like to talk to a real person, we can be reached at 323-660-1175. And don't forget, Skylight Books depends on listeners like you to help support us. So whether you're in our neighborhood or browsing online, buy a book or two to help ensure that we'll be around for a long, long time. Thanks and enjoy. Um, but enough of that, you know, enough of that, you know, um, because tonight we're going to have a, a wonderful literary force named Michelle T. <laughs> you can do better than that. She came all the way from San Francisco. Come on. She's on tour with Sister Spitz, okay? Great. Thank you. Thank you. And um, she really is a literary force. She uh, is an incredible writer. An incredible, uh, what I love about, you know, when I saw Michelle T was coming, it wasn't that she was just coming. She was also coming and bringing a bunch of people with her, you know. And that's what she's all about, you know, helping other writers become better writers and make the world a much more literary place. And we're always happy to have her here. Ladies and gentlemen, please welcome Michelle T. So great to see you. I love this bookstore so much. This is the first bookstore that I ever gave a reading in as like a person who was getting a book. Like the first, you know, like I have a book coming out. I'm going to do a reading. And it was here. And this is still one of my favorite bookstores ever in the whole world. So um, so we're here because Sister Spit has collaborated with City Lights Books um, Publisher in San Francisco. And we're doing an imprint um, where we're going to publish two to three books a year of people who have toured with Sister Spit, will tour with Sister Spit. And um, the debut book is an anthology of a bunch of people from the past, like, you know, 15 tours or something, um, or 15 years of tours. And I wrote a little intro. I'm going to read part of it. And then I'm going to start bringing people up. Um, let me see. So Sister Spit started as an all-girl open mic in San Francisco. So that's what, um, and I just started with Sydney Anderson, who's a poet who's now a filmmaker who lives in New York. So that's what that is. After two years of hosting our weekly event, Cindy and I were burned out. We called Sister Spit quits and took a break. I started playing drums in punk bands. I wasn't great, and neither were my bandmates. But that didn't stop us from hitting the road on a month-long tour up and down the West Coast. Riot Girl and Homocore were still raging. We played the Supergirl Conspiracy Conferences in Santa Barbara and Seattle. We were part of a festival in Portland that Slater Kinney headlined. We played at the famous Capitol Theater in Olympia, Washington, and members of Team Drush were in the audience. We made enough money to gas the van, and that was it. We slept on the floors of strangers. We drank their beer and bummed their cigarettes. I remember selling the book I was reading to a used bookstore so I could get $5. I remember scraping nickels together and purchasing a granola bar from a plaid pantry, my breakfast, lunch, and dinner that day. 
When I got back to San Francisco, I was exhilarated and bummed. Bummed because I had to quit my band. We were a dysfunctional family and I couldn't take it. Also, after all the easy camaraderie I'd found with other poets and writers, the snootiness of the music scene was an annoyance. I put down my drumsticks and returned to my notebook. I met up with Cine and some friends at a Mexican restaurant to regale them with tales of my travels over margaritas, and the idea for Sister Spitz Ramblin' Roadshow hit us in a burst of drunken genius. By my sorry standards, the punk tour I'd just survived had been a success. I'd seen parts of the country I'd never known. I'd spied what the larger queer scene looked like. I felt the thrill of performing for crowds of strangers. I woke up on the shag-carpeted rug of a punk house, feeling worldly and wise, like a train hopper or a real beatnik. I felt freedom and it felt rad. If my crappy punk band could go on tour, why couldn't a bunch of poets? The writers I'd come to know through Sister Spit were way more talented than my band. And unlike the band, which relied on an audience who enjoyed our particular brand of obscure, no noisy, atonal, instrumental math punk, the stories and poetry of the writers we knew had a more universal appeal. Cindy and I went to work booking a one-month national tour. It is worth mentioning that I made $12,000 that year, and Cindy no doubt made the same, if not less. We did not have cell phones. Nobody did. We did not have credit cards. We did not have college education that had empowered us to think we could take on such, crazy, such a crazy, ambitious project. And we also had no student loan debt shackling us to a straight life. We came from alcoholic families that had raised us to thrive in chaos and act without a lot of forethought. Thank God. If we had known what we were setting out on, what would be, if we had known we were setting out on what would be a $10,000 adventure, we would have never taken it on. But we didn't know anything. Town by town, we booked shows, mapping our way across the USA. We turned to Punk Bible Book Your Own Fucking Life, a how-to guide for touring bands, published by Maximum Rock and Roll. We cracked open the cheesy Damron Traveler, the gay travel guides, guides that always had a tanned fag by a swimming pool on the cover. We used it to hunt down gay bars across America, keeping an eye out especially for places that had drag shows, figuring they'd have a stage and a PA. We sought out slam teams in cities and towns and asked us to book, asked them to book us a show. We began a steady fundraising cycle, one benefit a month for the first six months, upping it to two benefits a month as the tour grew closer. One benefit would be a spoken word show, the next a rock show. We had a big dance party that netted us a whopping $1,000, the cost of our van, and a fancier performance where Annie Sprinkle let us auction off a pair of her pasties. In August, we hit the road with a lineup that included Eileen Miles, my favorite writer ever, Ali Liebegott, my other favorite writer and also best friend, Harry Dodge, the performance artist who ran the Bearded Lady Cafe, epicenter of all things queer, artsy, and punk in 1990s San Francisco, and many others, 13 total, including our heckler and roadie, Sash Sunday. Two van loads of queer performers taking off into the place we'd fled, America. Town after town greeted us with sold out shows, friendly strangers who clamored to cook us spaghetti and meaty brunches. We drank for free and sold our work to older lesbians in Charlottesville, North Carolina, to hot bar dykes at Meow Mix in New York, to goth girls in Houston, Texas, and FBI agents in Washington, D.C. This is all true. Drag queens in New Orleans, preppies in Boston, salty dogs in Provincetown, punks in Atlanta, and thespians in Greenville. Macho slam poets in Austin and frat boys in Las Vegas. Literary folk in Buffalo and activists in Philly. Everywhere we went, we found our people, and they were and were not who we thought they would be. Our country welcomed us. Incredibly, we realized that we belonged here. Our worlds got bigger, and we returned to San Francisco changed. At the end of the month, we were able to pay 12 writers and one roadie $80 for their month of exhausting 24 hours a day work. <laughs> Those days feel far away from the tour I'm on today. I wrote this on in April when we were on tour. I expect the engine in the van we're driving won't crack and die on the Alabama-Mississippi border at midnight on a Friday night, forcing us to sell it for parts and continue our trek illegally transporting eight passengers in a cargo van without seats. Probably the starter won't die, requiring me to crawl under the van and whack it with a hammer in order to turn on the van. We called that hammer time. <laughs> 
I'm willing to bet cash money that our van won't overheat so severely that we actually can't turn it off for fear that it will not turn back on again circa 1998. No one will have to lead us in group van visualizations of cool snow falling on our overheated engine or icicles dripping from the vents. If this van we are in right now were to burst into flames the way some wires did on our 1999 tour, well, I'd be shocked. Our intrepid drivers are not having to keep their foot wrapped in a wet towel in order to withstand the heat of the gas pedal. No, we are in a rental van, a long black passenger van we rent from a company that rents vans mainly to bands and who name each of their vans after a female musician. We're driving in Harriet, but we can't figure out who Harriet is named after, so we've been calling her Elvira. When we pull into town tonight, we have a place to stay. Not like the show in the 1990s when I would shout into the mic at the close of the show, hey, can anyone put us up for the night? Someone always would. Once that someone was a girl who neglected to tell us her home was a very, very small apartment in some housing projects, which was already pretty crammed with ferret cages. Another time, Sister Spit performers all fell asleep on a stranger's futon, only to be woken up at six in the morning by a couple of skinheads who'd come to repossess their sleeping furniture. In Tucson, a performer slept in a clawfoot bathtub. It was the coolest spot in the house. We slept in bunks on women's land in the south, no electricity, chiggers in the grass, and dike-biting pike in the lake we swam in. Hold on, Dorothy Allison, sprawled out barefoot next to me in the van, has started telling a story about the time Sapphire read her poem Wilding, and the violence of the beautiful work drove out half the audience, including Angela Davis. I tried to refocus, but then Cassie J. Snyder twisted around in the front passenger seat and asked me if there had ever been any drama on Sister Spit tours, and I was off and running for a good hour, detailing, without ever mentioning a name, the time two alcoholic members fell diabolically in love, carved hearts on each other with razors as the sun came up, and got dragged to a morning AA meeting by the tour's two sober members. <laughs> or the time our new roadie tried to run away from the tour in the middle of the night because the poet she'd kissed in a bar bathroom then kissed someone else in a bar bathroom. The heterosexual performer who had an end of tour meltdown screaming, I need men and meat, after too much time spent among vegetarian lesbians. <laughs> the dinner brawl prompted by one tour member whipping a dildo from his pants and daring a circus performer we'd befriended to fillet it. A rogue Catholic in the back of the room, this was in Boston, was violently offended and started menacing us all, so I jumped into action and hurled a jar of gray poupon at his head, sparking rather than quelling a raging fight. <laughs> then Dorothy asked if there had been any, any romantic dramas on Sister Spit, and I detailed the hookups and breakups the tour had inspired. Ten breakups have happened on the road, plus eight hookups, two resulting in marriages and then subsequent divorces. I finally shut up and tried to turn back to the task at hand, only to be distracted by Brontes Purnell talking about his father back in Alabama, freaking out on him for not owning land. How are you going to get beans? You're going to go on some white man's land and they're going to kill you. And Brontes back in Oakland going, huh, I get my beans at the grocery store. I started Sister Spit because I wanted to go on a massive road trip and I don't drive. I started Sister Spit because I had a vision of a group slumber party with all the most interesting people I've met. I started Sister Spit because I was frustrated that all of my friends were wild geniuses and the rest of the world didn't seem to know this. And the bonding in the van, the thrill of a new city every night, and the true joy and wonder on our audience's faces as they behold their new favorite performers and their concept of what is possible in life gets cracked open a little wider. All these things make me keep doing Sister Spit every year. Um, and then I just talk about all the things that are cool in the book. But you're just going to see that right now, because the book's going to come alive before your eyes, which is very exciting. Um, so now I'm going to um, bring up the first reader, who's Harry Dodge, who came on the very, very first Sister Spit tour in 1997 and blew my mind. I didn't think he'd say yes, so I was really excited. And um, you know, at the time, of course, Harry um, was one of the founders of the Bearded Lady Cafe, which is a really, really important place in San Francisco, a really important place in my life. And um, you know, Harry's gone on to make the film by Hook or by Crook, and um, has had work shown in the Whitney Biennial and is a great artist and teacher here in LA. Please welcome Harry Dodge. Thank you very much.
Thanks everybody for coming here. Thanks Michelle for putting this book together. So cool. So great. Of course I haven't seen the book until just tonight because Michelle's handing them to people by hand. Bye. So I just got mine. But um, So um, I'm going to read something that I didn't actually read on the Sisters Pit Tour. Is that okay to say that? It's crazy. Um, it was a long time ago. It was 1997 that I went on the Sisters Pit Tour. I don't even want to count how many years that may have been. I've gotten reading glasses since then. Um, okay, so this is a, 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 a something I call a work in progress, although it's been at this stage for quite some time now. So I think it's itself. Um, and it's called uh, High Five for Ram Das. Uh, I don't usually speak into microphones. Should I keep it? I think you should keep it. Yeah? yeah. yeah. It's, it's okay? Yeah. All right. Okay. Um, it's a. Okay, I'll just start reading it. This one, this is, it's got like um, parts that I, I'll just say like this. Is, the first part's called book one, the second part's book two, and I'm just going to read from the beginning. Okay, book one. <laughs> two of the members are stuck down a hole. Asia has been sent back to find us, perhaps a day and a half behind group one. She emerges from a patch of Palo Verde and skips the last few feet down into the wash. We are surrounded by gray rocks the size of brontosaurus testicles. My ankles are weak. The Neils think you are the only one who can get them out. I hate all the Neils. Smug, I hate smug. I would never ever name a person Neil after this experience. <laughs> Marx the authoritarian is whimpering by the time I arrive. I guess smack dab in the middle of clubbing a squirrel to death, he started an allergic reaction to an unripe prickly pear they had just finished brunching on, and with a muted snap, his epiglottal appendage had very suddenly inflamed to the size of a ping pong ball. Presumably, he reeled, lost his footing, and was hurled into the old well. As an aside, at approximately 29 inches in diameter, it was a ridiculously tight opening and had to have been excavated initially by a real lazy motherfucker. <laughs> I notice a trio of scavengers have dragged a small set of bleachers over, and I suppose people will be making themselves at home for the duration of the spectacle. One of Marx the Authoritarian's legs is underneath him, touching the floor of the damp trap, and one leg is straight above him. His knee is pressing into his throat really, really hard, he yells up. But his allergic reaction has subsequently reversed itself, and again, I'm not sure how Sabbath died and then got down there on top of him. Air supply, is that you, buddy? The length of the cave actually amplifies his voice. The voice of the clumsy spelunker. I hope to God that it's you. I can hear that he is drooling. I get down on all my knees, put my cheek to the warm dirt around the rim of the loamy ventricle. You've been off kilter lately. I murmur. I know he can hear me perfectly. A dense hush settles onto the bleachers. What? Shit! I'm totally smashed in here, man! His voice cracks. I sit up for a moment and concentrate on a set of deep amber buttes way off to my right. I narrow my eyes at the Neils, who are all puckered together in the front row. And the A's crying now, apparently subsumed by a panic that strikes me and most of the other people on the bleachers as unattractive. Where was my sportsmanship now? Beyond my control was the urge to crap down the hole instead of just jettison my garbagey thoughts. <laughs> Having been on the land the longest, by my count, I was both respected and regarded with suspicion. I had managed to become an outsider among the outsiders while living outside. 
Bruised with the psychic arrows discharged continually by the lingering specter of youth culture, you can take the young out of culture, I inarguably remained a being diminutive in physical stature and more to the point, fundamentally narrow. I also had long hairs that protruded idiotically from both of my nostrils. For these reasons, and some others I will refrain from mentioning, I was therefore best qualified for the dangerous mission that was to follow. Spirituality is a mean, nasty chicken snatcher, I said down the hole. Spirituality! I tilted my head away from the earthy orifice in a covert address to the remaining bystanders. Spirituality, no matter how softy-soft you think it is, steals the marvelous from the physical world. I was totally off the point, and I knew it. A renewed round of sobs arose from the soggy grotto. What are you, what are you driving at, air supply? His cries sounded like a dog yelping. I felt like killing him. Let's eat him after you pull him up. Neil Sadaka suggested. His tiny flipper fings wriggled almost imperceptibly, ju imperceptibly, just off his clavicle. Book two. Shortly after I was able to sit up, my mother strapped me to my potty seat and left me there for just over three years. I still have calluses on the back of my thighs to prove it. She managed to feed me now and then, empty the bowl on most days, and wipe me down biennially, but she never said a damn thing in my direction. I was just like a little tunnel, respirating, memorizing the lines of the dim doorway, the knob, a glowing yellow shade over my left shoulder. Sometimes I heard her crying, padding around in her slippers. One day she killed a cat in the downstairs foyer. City workers eventually found me there, a little filthy pink Rodin, pooping. I was real skinny. At that point, so the story goes, I wanted to know the words for everything. Humans are funny and stupid. Why would I want to know the words for anything? We have like cookie cutters instead of brains. I met my one good friend at the agency, though. There are a lot of feral kids there, or partially feral. But the best one was a kid they rescued off a Patagonian plateau a few years before. He had been in the wilderness there since he was four and a half, tending sheep. Enslaved, apparently, and neglected. And he, he never really cared to speak. He was barely managing his daily chorus. I'd gladly go back. After a late, over a late lunch one day, when he keeled over of a brain aneurysm, I tried to help him, but I thought he was choking on a french fry and was way into the Heimlich thing when the EMT showed up and noticed the blood balloon forming on the side of his tender, eager, little enslaved head. I miss him, though. Don't get me wrong. I can still hear his tiny whispering mantra. Probably he's why I ended up on this land, trying to figure out how to get Marx the authoritarian out of his hole. My preludial phases are most effectively characterized by the sentence fragment that follows. A bunch of ass-eating jumbos. <laughs> the assorted biological anti-fruits of my failed gene enhancements are, however, at this juncture quite striking, and I have to admit, have garnered a certain amount of praise and or erotic attention. Chicks dig me. Life as an earthling without outer ear cones, less one arm, and with three spindly little brittle bone bird legs has not been as wholly joyless as one, not in the know, may imagine. There are thousands of us, narrows we're called. Our bodies are more cylindrical, although the difference is negligible and for the most part imperceptible, and our ribs are also very flexible. And when it counts, I can fit into places that are most certainly a pretty tight squeeze for the old guard. Book three. We are allowed to bring five pounds in with us. 
uh, like heredity, where you show up with a certain load. Primeval gifts we give ourselves. I bring in a very lightweight sleeping bag that frays and disintegrates over the course of my first week. In addition, I bring in a stack of pornography, which comes in handy as a blanket until I perfect the employment of pine boughs, coal beds, and various terrain-appropriate shelters. Chicago, Asia, Fleetwood Mac, we're all given soft rock names when we arrive. The goal is a resynthesis of the worst of contemporary culture, vaccinations. Sometimes someone gets the name of a person who didn't do soft rock. One guy got the name Lee Iacocca. And another guy, his lover, who they came at the same time, got Simon Winsor, who directed Free Willy in 1993. <laughs> no one on the land knows who the original Simon Winsor is, but Simon Winsor, the guy from our group, feels okay even not having a famous name to live out the rest of his days with. Another guy got the name Marx the Authoritarian, which I thought was nice because it rhymed with Conan the Barbarian. He was just a little guy though, like me. He was really nice and kind of wispy. There's only been one baby born into the community. Eagles and Bee Gees had a perfect little hermaphrodite, which they call the brown dwarf. Brown dwarfs are this type of star in actual outer space that never lit on fire. They have a lot of mass, but not enough to create the explosion that would light them up, so they account for some of the mass or gravity that certain near galaxies exert, but we have no way of seeing them because they do not emit light. They apparently have a sucking capability that does not rival a black hole. It is a brown dwarf, a mysterious blob of as yet primordial ooze, awaiting assignment like universal stem cells. Once a week, Neil Sadaka goes out and liberates a capitalist. We roast him whole like the piggy is with an apple in his mouth and then eat him without using our hands. Again, the idea is unification, wholeness, so we don't disassemble the corpse and also some hair of the dog stuff to keep us on our toes. We do this weekly, did I say that? And while we eat, we chant, unit guy, unit guy. Shim's our mascot. A being with just a body, no appendages or holes at all. I think of him like a cross between Casper the Ghost and an octopus. I don't know why. We trance out during these group be-ins. I like it a lot. I happen to know that pretty much all matter is made out of the same stuff. These tiny little things called strange, charm, and neutrinos. Objects and organisms just form and reform out of the ooze. There are certain particles that are especially attracted to other particles, so that's why certain forms are really common as far as the observable universe, like iron. The whole core of the Earth is a hard iron ball, and then a bunch of liquid iron around it. And hydrogen is the most common. That's what most of the stars are eating. 92% of everything is hydrogen. It weighs one. A lot of people have done research around why, for example, humans don't just fall into a pile of iron and hydrogen. It's because we're in a struggle with the sun's heat, apparently. The organism stays organized as long as it has a task. If I had to make a molecule out of humans, Ram Dass would be the proton, Barbara Streisand would be the electron, and Ted Kaczynski as the neutron. In moments of glee, members will often yell out, high five for Ram Dass, and slap hands about face level. It is not that high of a five. <laughs> this salutation is apparently particular to this land and this membership. They were doing it pretty often, even on, on the very first day I arrived. Um, thanks. That's all I'll read, but the rest is in the book. Thanks so much. Thanks, Harry Dodge. The rest is in the book, and it's really excellent and weird, as you can imagine. So you should get it. It's pretty awesome. Um, our next reader is Miriam Gerba, who came on tour with us some time ago. And um, 
is such an amazing writer um, and poet and was holds like the kind of like sister spit superlative of having brought the largest suitcase with her larger than anybody else so large that at our last show we put her in our suitcase and we rolled her out onto the stage to introduce her and then we ends up turning she climbed out it was really awesome please welcome the author of Dahlia Season um, Miriam Gerba mother-to-be. I really want a human to grow inside of me, but if I put the phone up to my ovaries, you can hear the time for that running out. Tick-tock, tick-tock, goes my baby-making clock. Someday, I will christen my child with a traditional Mexican name like Cuidado Piso Mojado. <laughs> For short, we'll call him Mojado. <laughs> Did you really think I'd name my baby Caution Wet Floor or Wet Back? Here are the baby names I'm considering for reals. Cuauhtémoc, Moctezuma, Huitzilopochtli, Tezcatlipoca, Tepescuintle, Hatshepsut, Thoth, Borislav, Bob. Away with words. For a living, my brother does things with computers. Last week, after he went to a programming conference, he came over. We went out for Chinese. Serving him chop suey, I asked, how was it? He answered, there was a whole lot of Asperger's going on. Computadora. <laughs> the Spanish word for computer is a bordello. The Spanish word for heart attack eats beans. Infarto. <laughs> the Japanese word for mouth opens wide for a pap smear. Coochie, coochie, coo. Would you let strangers say that to your baby? If Gabriel Garcia Marquez mated with John Steinbeck, they would name their baby A Thousand Years in Vacaville. <laughs> My Mexican great-grandma loved tacos de sesos, beef brain folded into corn tortillas, I think of this intelligent delight as eating computer, since brains are basically mushy hard drives. Cow brains compute where the juiciest grasses grow and where oak trees cast superior shade. 
grass-fed software decomposed in my great-grandma's gastric juices. Moo chose smart food. <laughs> Ancient Aztec remedy for AIDS. Vicks VapoRub. What would you have to do to win the Eileen Wernus Memorial Scholarship Fund? <laughs> be a psychopath? Be real ugly? Eat pussy because you have to? Live in the Everglades? Wrestle gators? Keep a comb in your back pocket? Raise man-hating to an art form? Promise to take women's studies seriously? Promise never to show remorse? Promise to proudly take your throne in hell beside a toothless dyke Persephone? Thank you. Thanks, Miriam Gerba, or as we like to say, Gerbs. Um, Gerbs has an incredible blog called Les Brain, and you should be reading it. It is a highlight of the internet, for reals. And I'm speaking of internet highlights, I'm staying with my sister while I'm here in Los Angeles, and she's really into Pinterest. So she got, so now I'm hooked on Pinterest, and now I have a new Pinterest account. I know you do too, Sarah Seinberg. Don't stand there flapping yourself. I saw all your little Instagram pictures of your meals on Pinterest. Um, and so I basically have, I had such an internet bottom last night like I've never had in my life. And I was up till two in the morning just like playing with my boards, just like <laughs> looking at pictures. And um, so I'm really exhausted. So then I just drank a Red Bull type of beverage. So I feel like I'm slurring quickly for all of you. <laughs> I just wanted you to know where I'm at. Okay, great. Um, all right, so the next performer up here is Sarah Seinberg, who came from San Francisco to be here. And um, Sarah came on the very first Sisters Bit tour ever in 1997, so she's full of stories. And um, I remember after we stopped doing Sisters Bit, when I was just like, the tour, and I was like, thanks, man. I was like, I'm never going to do this fucking thing again. This is crazy. And I gave um, Sarah a, she wanted a tarot reading to know if she'd ever come on Sisters Bit again. And I was like, Impossible. I'll never do it again. And then I read her tarot cards and said she would come on Sister Spit again. I was like, weird. And then I did start doing Sister Spit again, and Sarah Seinberg came on it. So tarot cards are real. Is the is this right? So um, so Sarah Seinberg is wonderful. Um, she is working on a book called Pandora. We have an excerpt of it in the book. Um, a word on the book. It's there's all kinds of different stuff in it. There's new work by people. Um, there's work that people performed while they were on the tour, and there's diary entries. So it's like a mishmash. So please welcome Sarah. Seinberg. Hi, you guys. There's seats over here if anyone wants to sit down. Super action packed. So, um, it's true, I got to go on Sister Spit twice, and I also got to um, go to the radar lab in Mexico that um, Michelle and her organization, Radar Run, and um, I got to work on this book, and it's a retelling of the myth of Pandora, and it takes place, like you get some background, it takes place in modern day New York eventually, but this is, um, 
I'm just going to read it. Um, Zeus's father ate his siblings. And that was long before me and my famous jar. It seems difficult to believe that all the world's evils could be crammed into my purse when there was a god eating his kids right out of the gate. But still, I run around in fear, centuries of mourning, mutilation, genocide, and epidemics. Simple broken hearts and humiliation, useless betrayals, gout, slavery, a bubonic blackness, and ovens in Europe. Witches burned, children sold, and sailors drowned. Machetes in Rwanda, the angel of death flying over bloody doorways in Egypt, Hiroshima, Irish car bombs, casual rape culture, and heroin. These things roam free, a herd of misery throughout time, but still, I lug the jar around, afraid it could get worse. Don't open the jar, Pandora, they say. Something terrible will happen. But terrible things happen constantly. You say a word like war, and it's just these three little letters. So easy. You put your lips together in a pucker. You push a little air out. You roll an R at the end. Easy word. But inside it, inside it, the unimaginable. Unless you're there, then you don't have to imagine it. You have to live through it over and over the rest of your small, mortal life. Mortar and mortal are only one letter away from each other. And that's just the English irony. All the languages have their jokes, too. But the jar was part of my birth, and so, like an organ, I carted it around despite logic, wondering. Zeus had sent me to seduce Prometheus, who knew I was a trick. So Zeus had to come up with plan B to have me couple and cripple the dimmer titan Prometheus's brother, Epimetheus. But Prometheus dragged Epimetheus away so fast that even plan B was just a pile of cinders before I was the age of a toddler. The whole thing was such an immediate failure. The gods forgot about me most of the time. They moved on to other things, and eventually their careless couplings with other mortals brought more women. I was no longer the special one, yet something had me march on looking for the titan brothers. That's what I'm hardwired to do. It's the purpose of my entire being. That, and thanks to Hera, women. The jar was my constant companion. Each night I would lay with it in my arms, feeling the contents bang into its walls throughout my dreams. I clutched it to me, protecting it from theft in the cover of darkness. I sang to it, songs of love and loss, and sometimes the saddest songs would quiet the thing, a city of nightmares in a jar. After a time, I would set it away from me, needing my own sleep for strength and travel. From across the room, I watched it by burning candles, the commotion settling into a night rhythm of humming and thumping until the sun broke. By the candlelight, I could sometimes see a glow in there. It took years to become acquainted with the residents of the jar, but the longer I got to know them, the better I could see the glow. Meanwhile, the world would spin on. Mortals made all kinds of discoveries after the theft of fire. They found electric avenues and bands of sound. They made communication strides with devices. And they took to the sea and the air for travel. They began to control the very cycles of women, create more and more means of quicker murder in hot places, moving from hands to rocks to daggers, to arrows, to cannons, to revolvers, to lasers. They mapped poverty and drugs to wipe out entire swaths of populations. And they gassed piles of each other in striped clothing. 
Humans spent so much time and money figuring out new ways to kill each other, one wondered if they understood that they were all gonna die at some point anyhow. Sometimes I stared at the jar and I wondered what I was. A product of the gods, not even an orphan with parents to mourn. Was I immortal? Adrift in the world with no peers, I would sometimes come upon a god who showed me kindness, protected me as a product of Olympus, and as often, I came across immortal cruelty, Ares showing off his warlike skills that would leave bruises for 16 years. Hera sending me so many gorgeous women, each one irresistible and irreparably damaged. Signs of aging would come and go. My appearance would climb to a certain wrinkle, and then as though a, child, a children's riddle, the wrinkles would fade and my breasts would inch back up my chest. And all the while, I'd follow the titans across the globe, not quite knowing why. And I would watch the jar. That's it. Thanks for listening. Thanks, Sarah Seinberg. Um, our next performer um, also came on the very first Sister Spit tour ever in 1997. We've got a lot of survivors here tonight. <laughs> and, um, and she also came on later tours where we stayed in hotels. Although it's really sad because since we started doing um, Sister Spit, not in the 90s, it's kind of a better deal. Like people get paid and we stay in hotels and stuff. But then there was this one sort of bum tour that Tara Jepsen got stuck on. And it's the only time during a tour where somebody tried to do a mutiny. And she actually organized a coup oh, of all of the performers. What I meant. <laughs> all the performers. So she was back at this horrible house. It, you know, sometimes people, people are really kind across the United States, but they also don't necessarily understand what it takes to host Sister Spit. Like they want to host Sister Spit, but they want to put us up because they think we're going to have a big party with them. But actually, not, like, we're very unhappy people on the road, and we just want a bed and some food. So this lady's like, I'll feed you. Come over. So we go to her house. It's going to take a long time, this story. Yeah. But now I'm in it. I can't get out of it. I can't get out of it. It's really good. So, so we go in, and like, first of all, her like, giant dog tries to kill us. Not a great start, but whatever. And she didn't seem we very disturbed. And she's holding the boat and just... <laughs> <laughs> Like we'd been in the van for like nine hours. It was this really crazy tour that um, had us going. Like, you need three. Th you need you need two of three things to have a good show on Sister Spit or probably any tour. Like, there's three things. There's a short drive. That's nice. A lot of money. That's nice. A big show, like with lots of people. That's nice. Like sometimes you get a show that doesn't pay very well, but a lot of people come and they love you, and it's not too far of a drive, so it's worth it. Or you get like a show that like is totally empty, and you drove, but like it was close, and they're paying you a whole bunch of money. Or you know, you need a combo. So we like kind of were on this tour where we were, none of it was matching up. Like we were driving really far distances for no money and no audiences, and um, we had driven for nine hours. We got to this woman's house. We're starving, and we find that. To feed us, she'd gotten just like one of those like round platters of like sushi, like from a supermarket. And sushi's not that filling. And then she invited five of her friends over to like hang out with us. And so there was like nine of us, and then the five friends, and then there was this one person who was walking around the tray in advance of eating, just taking sushi bits and turning them on their side as a way of like putting her key on the seat to save herself. She's saving herself a piece of sushi. But like nobody else have, had, have ever heard of this code. So we were just eating sushi and then she was getting like really mad at us. The entire Philadelphia roll for it was, it was a little weird, it was a little weird. And then meanwhile, the, the woman who put us up, her live-in lover had decided fuck all of this and was in the pantry cooking herself a big pot of spaghetti. And we're just like, can we eat the spaghetti? And like, I think Tara actually tried to eat the spaghetti. No, Somebody no. went in there, tried to eat the food. I did go in there to see 
see it, but it wasn't revealed until right before our show, so there was no, like, there wasn't time to eat it. It's very so, sad. Like, right before we went, we walked in and we're like, wait, what? But like, meanwhile, there's like... You're in the stupid sushi tray and other... And a little tray of, uh... What's it called? Decorative the, carrots. The carrots are artisan, yeah. Artisan, artisanal carrots. Yeah. Like little, little skinny, a little skinny purple carrot. Little skinny yeah. yellow carrot. They were very pretty. They had their tops still on them. They but they were put out for us to like eat. We, we wanted like tubs of beef jerky or something. It was really hard. And then we did our show and, um, and it was really sad. And it was in like the last, last gay bookstore standing in America. It just was kind of like, you know, it, just, it, w- it would have been sweet to be there if like people had shown up, but there was like no, nobody there. I can't say. I just can't say. I won't say. So, so <laughs> no, don't say, don't say, don't say. Because this person's really nice and still comes to all of our shows, and I would hate to her to know the truth so that I'm t- telling this story. Um, so then we went to her. So then after the show, a bunch of us went out to sing karaoke, as we do. Um, actually, just a few of us did, but the, Tara actually wrangled a whole bunch of people to go back home so she could plot a coup while we were singing karaoke. So by the time I got back, um, she... It was just a couple of people, but they had gotten to the house first, so they knew that our sleeping arrangements were actually really scary, kind of gross and scary. And um, and when we got there, she said, "We're not going on to Minneapolis. We're going to go stay with my mother in Wisconsin. We're going to hijack the tour, hijack the tour van to to Wisconsin and stay." And um, we didn't do it, thank God, because Minneapolis was a re- Minneapolis was a really great show. Yeah, and then we turned the beat around. Morale went up. It was awesome. We still got to go stay in um, Tara's mother's house. So I hope that story was worth the intense effort of focus and concentration it took on my end to tell that to you in the state that I'm in. Without further ado, Tara Jepson. But I just feel like such an asshole when I think. But it was, you know, we were just drained. <laughs> Um, I wrote a thing in here that is uh, lesbian fantasies, and so I was—I wrote a few new ones last night just for um, fun. But I was certainly in a darker mood than I was when I wrote the ones in the book. So I'm going to start with a heavier time, which is last night, and then go to the ones in the book. So these are not as edited either. Um, and then I woke up. It's like another dumb thing to say, like disclaim my whole thing. So. Back to me just walking up here. I'm going to read some uh, lesbian fantasies. Okay. <laughs> Feeling really vulnerable. Just kidding. I'm not. Okay. In my, <laughs> um, in my lesbian fantasy, I invite you to lie next to my body, which has the temperature range of an active man in his 20s. With time, you see I'm always too hot, directing fans and air conditioning at my furnace of a body, which betrays its true non-male gender through the use of gravity-beleaguered boobs, arms with a muscle tone of radio antennas, and a skateboarding style which looks like that drinking bird toy in the 70s, which explains the th- second law of thermodynamics. Beak in the water, butt pulls you back. All I'm trying to say... I, um, in my most successful Google ever last night, I found them online. I'm a terrible Googler, and that's completely in earnest, um, but I did do it. Okay. Um, so all I'm trying to say is that my butt sticks way out when I skate, like I'm a table for every angry WNBA coach to throw her blazer on. Like, like I want to give you justice for everything warm you ever felt. In my lesbian fantasy, we ride off We ride off-brand 10-speed bicycles up a dark residential road which slowly snakes uphill. A subtle extra-saturated darkness that recalls a cartoon kapow moves in the bushes, obscuring a drainage ditch. And though I know this shadow creature is a threat, we move forward at a steady pace and remain unmolested. Though I cannot understand how we know the way the road curves, we navigate without mistake and come to the top where swarms of soft fireflies swoop toward us and illuminate only themselves, respecting the darkness. And, And my last one from last night. 
In my lesbian fantasy, I line up every skateboarder I've seen riding unforgiving concrete deep in a heroin haze. I look into their rippling puddle eyes like they are clean toilets. I shave the head of the one who looks like he's wearing a black stewardess wig. I watch the back of his dirty and ragged brown pants pooch out in a triangle over his butt crack, showing no underwear. He turns his board and wobbles and recovers inconceivably from poorly executed turns and grinds on metal coping. His body rolls about like a lottery ball with his bones jangling inside, tumbling until they're captured and noted for their number. He drops in sloppily with wings of black hair like blinders, missing the five-year-old boy in the deep end waiting to drop in. The rest of us stand in shock and dissociation, accustomed to watching people wound themselves, engaged more by the sweeping incongruity of his body like the cursive alphabet mingling with the print guys. Okay. Now I'm going to do a... I really also, because of the 1997 tour now, time myself because there was one night that we read, I think it was in like um, Charlottesville or wherever it was, and I just read a fucking really long time. Like, it's just something really horrifying, like 20 or 20, just something stupid with, you know, 12 of us reading, and I got off stage and you were like, Michelle said, that was great, but it was really long. And I felt so bad, like such a goon, that now I'm on top of it. Um, okay. In my lesbian fantasy, I'm shoved out of a car driving on the highway at a moderate speed. I'm wearing a knee-length skirt, a simple cotton shirt with a collar, and I tumble out like a mess of broken broomsticks across the gravel and into the grass. It is dusk. I land next to a frog whose bagpipe body expands and contracts with a necessary function. I lie on the warm earth and listen to the frog's vocal rubber band boinging. I think of Foley artists. I think I am, for the moment, fully alive. In my lesbian fantasy, I live in a home entirely furnished with the most beautiful fake bear rugs with fake bear heads. White walls with dark wood trim surround me. The back door opens to a humming snarl of green. I eat fruit and drink wine and have one bear rug designated for sleeping and my back never hurts. The other rugs are for entertaining guests and we're always lying down but also sitting up. A fire crackles to the degree that we need it. It is also the mood of being liquefied butter. There is a notion of bongs but, not, but no reality of them. If I ever have to move to a new home, I just roll up my rugs, break all the wine glasses in a detached and joyful ceremony and pack up my big Chevrolet van. I have help, though I don't need it. Setting up a new home is simple, and the plumbing works perfectly, including incredible water pressure. My hair is always frizzy and huge. My pants never creep into my vagina. I remain limber, though ambivalent about yoga. <laughs> my friends also drive vans. I hang out with independent adults and a couple really cool 13-year-old boys. I care desperately for the environment, and the only reason I don't sail around the world is I don't want to steer a ship all day. But I want to get lost in a wild pack of dolphins always. Not in a sexual way, but also in a sexual way. <laughs> I have, I'm going to do two more. Um, in my lesbian fantasy, there are straight men sitting next to me explaining to each other how oppressed they are by their dates. They diagnose the women like idiots, throwing around terms like schizophrenic. In my lesbian fantasy, I stand up, ask them to move their chairs back, and then I flip the table. I put one man on each of my shoulders, and I carry them out of the cafe into the daylight. And as we walk out, I say, see, now it's literal. <laughs> and... Uh, this is the last one. In my lesbian fantasy, my fag friend Marcus Ewart and I have a detached and impassioned marriage. We love but are not in love. 
We need, but we don't crave each other. Our lovemaking involves Marcus as some sort of warthog man trunk in great command of his animalistic physical drives and emotionally developed tenderness. We are responsive to each other, and our detachment allows impossibly long gazes into each other's eyes. We decided together that the only appropriate response to a society that does not value women is to make my needs and experience our priority. <laughs> This works because I am hopelessly devoted to him and I make a tremendous bowl of popcorn. I am a broad-shouldered hippie sophisticate who communicates openly with Marcus and I cook healthy meals for us in a vast kitchen in Laurel Canyon. My turtle wanders as she pleases. Thank you. Thank you, Tara Jepson. That was great. Um, our next performer just took a Greyhound bus here from Oakland in true classic Sister Spit fashion. I mean, like, really, like, Sister Spit should be traveling in a Greyhound. At least in the 90s, we should have traveled in a Greyhound. It would have made more sense. Um, Cassie J. Snyder is fantastic. She's the author of the book um, Fine Fine Music, which there's copies of over there. And she did all of that art. And I think that she's selling it. Yes? Don't you want a Tom's of Finland poster? Get it? Cassie J. Snyder is fantastic. Um, she's going to read something tonight, but in the book, it's an art gallery of all of her amazing pieces. So um, make sure to check that out. Cassie J. Snyder. Hey, guys. Um, so I, I have all this art in the book, but I'm going to read something that no one's heard before. So this is like a, a wonderful privilege. Um, so on, uh, on July 31st, 2008, the world was supposed to get sucked into a black hole created by a super particle collider in Switzerland. And I was living in Austin, Texas, and um, cleaning houses naked for money um, and selling my blood. And my two best friends were stripping. And that day we decided to take a road trip from Austin to Denver, Colorado to see my favorite band play and also to deliver a comic that I had made about my favorite band to my favorite band. Um, Who's your favorite band? The Dwarfs, uh, which I also wrote for them. So uh, it was very, very important and uh, we made it there, the world didn't explode, um, and I was pretty excited about that. I also had my dog with me because I was moving and I had no one to take care of him, so he was mostly vomiting from anxiety and in the car with us. So um, that, that brings us up to speed. It's really something else to be a passenger in your own car. It's like when your mom lets you drive for the first time, or a strong, creepy uncle unexpectedly lifts you up to see a parade. I made a fort of sleeping bags and looked out the window at Colorado, a state I'd never been to. Brown grass rolling on forever over mountains, woodsy-looking housing developments appealing to the rustic fantasies of the wealthy, and gas stations that look like the last places on Earth. We stopped to get some ginger for the pug's upset stomach, wrapping it in bread to trick him and headed off to the setting sun. We had to make tracks if we were going to get back to Austin in time for me to edit some rich asshole's college paper or for Laura to make the night shift at the Yellow Rose. We made it, I said, settling into my nest of blankets. The world didn't end yet. Laura played with the radio. Jessica tapped the brakes, easing us down the side of a mountain. Nope, not yet. 
The sun set in grateful shades of orange and pink. The little red Toyota drove into the sun, backwards into a nighttime that had already begun in the east of a world that hadn't yet ended. And I fell asleep, squeezed between a cooler, two sleeping bags, and a snoring dog. I woke up when I heard Led Zeppelin, the last few notes of Babe, I'm Gonna Leave You. I hate Led Zeppelin, I thought, critical even in the first few seconds after waking up. <laughs> oh God, we're gonna hit it! I heard Jessica scream, then Laura, then the shuddering impact of something very large ricocheting off the front of a vehicle I still owed $4,000 on. I bolted upright in the back seat, squinting into the darkness, struggling to find my glasses. What just happened? I think its leg came off! Oh my god, is it dead? What the fuck just happened? The headlights closed in on a darkened country road, the car slowing down to about 60, Jessica still gripping the wheel. I can't believe we hit it! Oh my god! Jesus Christ, guys, what the hell just happened? We hit a deer! They answered at the same time. Well, pull over! Stopping had not occurred to any of us. I had not seen but felt the impact of the deer, so I was somehow the most calm of the three of us. Jessica slowed down and the car shook over the rumble strips until coming to a stop. I was the first out of the car, standing in the high beams checking the undercarriage. The front of the Toyota was annihilated, no doubt, but there were no leaks, no unusual sounds. I shouted into the wind of an 18-wheeler driving by in the opposite direction and Laura popped the latch. I looked into the guts of my car. Jessica got out and stood beside me. It wouldn't get out of the road, and then it jumped at the car. Laura stood to my left. I think its leg came off. Guys, we could have died. That thing could have flown through the windshield. Then where would we be? Nothing's leaking. Nothing's making any noise. We got away really lucky. I'm sorry, Cass. Jessica looked at the headlight, broken under a twist of metal. Jessica, we could have died. The car's no big deal, really. Truthfully, this accident now brought the car to the point of erosion where I no longer had to care. It was kind of a relief. Laura stared into the grill, disgusted. There's fur in there. We all crouched and peered into the radiator. I stood back up. How about I drive the rest of the way back? I'm awake now, like really awake. Neither Laura nor Jessica argued. Jessica climbed into the ne my nest in the back and I clicked my seatbelt for safety. I restarted the car and we drove slowly back down the highway. It just seems like a shame, you know, Jessica piped up from the back seat. What does? I looked at her in the rear view. To waste a perfectly good deer like that? Dude, come on! Jessica and her two perennially unemployed roommates had gotten into survival and living off the land. They had spent a few weeks working on building a sustainable mud hut and had been eating the leftovers of a wedding cake from a catering job for at least two weeks. <laughs> All I'm saying is that Nate and Chris might want to wake up to some venison in the morning. <laughs> Jesus, Jessica! You saw what it did to the car! That thing's probably in a thousand pieces by now! But what if it's not? If it's not, where would we even put it? There's a blanket in the trunk we could wrap it in. A dead deer is not gonna fit in the trunk. And what if it wakes up? Insurance isn't gonna pay for internal deer damage after a venison's reconnaissance mission. Can we just go back and check? 
I looked at Laura and she shrugged. I looked at Jessica, jaw set in the determined fashion I'd seen so many times, like when we cleaned out the garage for hours to have a place for the casual Fridays to practice. I wanted to give up when I came across a nest of spiders, but Jessica picked up the gross, the moldy, and the recently deceased with no complaint. I looked down the deserted highway and made a U-turn back toward what I didn't want to think about. It was about here, Jessica said, and I slowed down near the scene of the crime. Yeah, there it is. I stopped the car and Jessica and Laura got out to look. All three of us stood around the dead deer, like steel magnolias meets a violent redneck video game. The deer was basically intact, road-rashed, but definitely dead. Fuck. 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 Well, you guys can do what you want. I walked toward the car. How are we going to get it home? Jessica followed me, and I popped the trunk, which was still full of things I hadn't had time to move into my new digs. A box of books, two pairs of stilts, a record player, a dog bed, and a comforter. <laughs> Can we use your blanket? Where are we going to fit it if we wrap it in a blanket? There's no room, I said, digging around in the trunk for a solution. More bedding. A bike rack. Wait a minute. Do you think we can get it on the bike rack? It's worth a try. And so, Jessica and Laura dragged the dead deer to the car and secured it to the bike rack, while yours truly, the only vegetarian, puked her guts out on the side of the highway. We all got in the car. Laura and Jessica rooted around in the back for wet naps to get the dead deer off of their hands. I flipped through my CDs for the right music, something respectful and somber to drive back to Austin, veritable poachers, three women with no real jobs, a pug, and a very large, recently deceased woodland mammal. Once I found it, I put the car in drive. To everything, turn, turn, turn. I was the first to laugh, then Jessica, then Laura. The pug clawed at the plastic bag that held the disgusting wet naps. The little red Toyota drove past the tall grasses and fenced-in ranches and burnt-out gas stations, and the sun spilled over the horizon into another day that was all ours. Thanks, guys. Thank you, Kathy J. Snyder. Cassie runs a really great reading series called The Worst, and it's bi-coastal. There's one in San Francisco, and there's one in Brooklyn. So if you guys ever get out of LA, you should check it out. It's really great. Um, and then we have one final performer, and it's Blake Nelson, who's so fantastic. You know, Sister Spit started as an all-girl experience, and then it just stopped being that for a variety of reasons. But there was this one point when we were traveling with um, a trans guy who, like, didn't identify as being queer at all. And I was like, there's really no difference between him and, like, any other, you know, cisgendered guy so why don't we just like bring whoever makes sense and Blake Nelson makes so much sense on Sisters Fit. Um, he's the author, of, he's a really prolific young adult author. He's the author of Girl, which got excerpted in Sassy Magazine, which was all I needed to say really to get you in the tour. Um, and he came on tour reading from his book Recovery Road and he wrote a diary entry that's amazing. Please welcome Blake Nelson. Yeah, this is pretty straightforward. It's just a, it's just a diary or a journal or whatever. <laughs> so, day one. The Sister Spit Tour is underway. First stop last night was Mills College, which I have no pictures of because I didn't bring my stupid camera because I brought a flip camera instead because everyone keeps telling me that everyone loves video, but I don't because I don't have time to look at it and I especially don't have time to film it. <laughs> 
Anyway, so we rolled into Mills and asked directions from some super cute hipster girls who were hanging around the parking lot like fashion juvenile delinquents. We get to the student center, which was a beautiful, dark, wooded room, the likes of which you don't even notice when you're a student. But later in life, you think, wasn't I supposed to end up in beautiful, dark, wooded rooms? What happened to me? <laughs> then we ate. In the cafeteria, I couldn't figure out how to order because I don't know anything about food, and colleges have gotten pretty sophisticated about that stuff. I couldn't even figure out how to order spaghetti with red sauce. Note to college kids, it's kind of up to you to save the world from global destruction, so maybe a little less time foodieing and a little more time reinventing human society. Thank you. <laughs> so then the show commenced, and it was the first time the eight performers all got to see exactly what the others did. It was great. People were good and funny. I was laughing my ass off the whole time. The room was packed, and it was a big room. This is apparently normal for Sister Spit. Afterward, we loaded out and drove back over the Bay Bridge, chatting happily and watching San Francisco glitter beneath us as we crossed back into the city, as I recall Bay Area people called downtown. Then I got to wake up this morning in the Lower Haight, surrounded by Michelle T's amazing book collection, and found the Adderall Diaries, which I've been meaning to read for ages, and so I spent the morning with that. To hell with beautiful, dark, wooded rooms. I have a dream life already. Day three. Tonight we played the awesome, super adorable Rock, Paper, Scissors Collective in Oakland. When I enter places like this, I feel like I'm entering a humble monastery of perfect girl essence. They had sewing machines and fabrics and textures, and everything is free or shared, and everyone present is, or becomes upon entering, super gentle and kind and polite and nurturing. <laughs> I always feel like I'm some sort of crude peasant in the face of such cultural sublimity and generosity, and I always, in such places, have a little moment of, wow, look where I am. <laughs> Uh, day four. Tonight we did the elbow room in the mission. This is where Lauren Sarand and I first saw Sister, Sister Spit last year, and it killed. Not so much tonight. We were okay. Medium show, I thought. There was all this press there and millions of friends, easy to get distracted. Allie and I hid in the dressing room and said funny things to each other. Allie Liebegott must might be the funniest person I have ever physically sat next to. <laughs> Uh, day nine. Down to LA again to Pasadena City College. It is becoming clear there is no predicting which gigs are going to be amazing and which are going to be merely solid and fun. At PCC we were late. We called ahead to tell them and they were deeply worried about us. We got the idea right then that this was going to be a special show. As we drove, uh, drove around Pasadena looking for the proper parking lot, we spotted some queer students jumping up and down on the corner and waving at us. <laughs> then they ran down the sidewalk, wildly pointing us into the proper parking lot, sacrificing themselves for the good of the others, since now they would have to run all the way back to the student center. <laughs> it was a profound act of personal bravely, bravery and selflessness. <laughs> Inside, the PCC crowd was huge to bursting. They were so excited to have us there. They were freaking the fuck out. We were all deeply moved by their total commitment to Sister Spit. We then hit USC the next night. It was a terrible rainstorm, which I think dampened the crowd a bit. Also, it was a huge room, so despite having a respectable turnout, it felt a little diffuse. 
I did have a fun moment asking a USC student what the essential nature of USC was, and without blinking, she offered something like, it's a school of privileged, entitled white kids spending four years doing coke on their parents' credit cards. <laughs> I love it when people say stuff like that. I hated everything when I was in college, including my college. <laughs> Day 11. So we survived Santa Cruz, but just barely. <laughs> so then we packed up our crap and got the hell out of there and went to beautiful Arcata, home of Humboldt State College, where we performed for a movie theater full of locals. This is the legendary marijuana belt of the country. I don't know where the buckle is or where exactly the belt part goes, but Humboldt County is famous for its pot, and the hotel smelled of pot, and the town smelled of pot, and the people we all met appeared to be high. It was weird, small town-esque, but nice. I started having some sort of physical reaction as we continued north toward Portland, my hometown. The cold, the damp, the rain, the sadness of the sky. I just couldn't take it and started having seasonal disorder depression almost as soon as we drove over the border. And of course, whenever I see trucker-hatted, woolen-wearing older men get out of their mud-spotted pickups, I think for a second it is my dad who has passed away but lives on in the black earth of the Oregon woods. Then up to legendary Olympia. One of the fun things about Sister Spit is it kind of sensitizes you. Like since it's mostly women and mostly people with extra amazing radar, Michelle T, it makes you extra sensitive to subtle in-the-air vibrations that you might not pick up on normally. Am I making any sense? Just to say that hitting Olympia on this tour will not be like stopping there for a cup of coffee. And the town is sort of world historic anyway as one of the two great, great focal points of a certain kind of 90s youth cultural youth cultural flowering, D.C. being the other place. Hmm, we'll see. And then that was a great gig, but I won't, I won't go into it. So day 18. <clears throat> Holy crap, we show up at Bard. We're on the East Coast now. We set up our crap, and things are turning out a little more like we planned. Still, all of this is running way behind schedule, so that weird, artsy bard kids start appearing and disappearing and wandering around. One awesome girl had an eye-catching Karen O. haircut and the weirdest, coolest face ever. I should, have, I should have tried to chat with her, but why? They're just college kids. You talk to them, and there just isn't anything there yet. <laughs> <laughs> that was really true. I, I, really, I thought that the college kids were going to be full of great insights. They were just morons. <laughs> I mentioned this girl's haircut because uh, I think that the yeah, yeah, yeahs were formed at Bard, and also because haircuts matter. A cool haircut by a single audience member makes a medium gig into a good gig. And this girl had a cute dress, too. She looked great. Wear cool clothes, people. Give back. <laughs> All right, I'm going to skip a little bit ahead. Day 31. Mary's. We only have two more dates on the tour. Everyone is so sad. It's been so frickin' fun. Mary, by the way, is what everyone calls each other in the van. One can be addressed as Mary. Can you hand me those cheese balls, Mary? One can express things to the gods in the form of Mary. Mary, is it ever going to stop raining? And one can simply say the word to oneself as a kind of protection from all human trials and tribulations. Mary. <laughs> 
probably this is some ancient and well-known gay slang that every gay person in the world knows about, but it was new and fresh to me. <laughs> so we left Bloomington and drove up to Ann Arbor where we had Phoebe Glockner as our guest performer. Mary! We are all insane fans of hers. The gig was weirdly not packed, we are spoiled, but it didn't matter and created a loose, fun atmosphere, which I like. Phoebe went on last and told us about her new project, and she was a bit nervous, but spoke interestingly about her life as an artist. It was more like a big conversation, really, all of us chipping in, asking questions. And then it was back into the van and on to Minneapolis, home of F. Scott Fitzgerald and Garrison Keillor. Mostly I think of it through F. Scott Fitzgerald's eyes, though, but of course the world of rich kids riding around in motorboats on the lake is not anywhere I'm going to be. Isn't that always the case? You go to some famous spot that is so alive in your mind only to realize Truman Capote's New York is not in Central Park. It's up there in those penthouses, which I can't go to. That's why people love it so much, inaccessible. We did, we did get to see a little bit of rich kid cool at Seward's Cafe, though, which is the trendy foodie hipster restaurant that Sister Spit frequents on all trips to the Twin Cities. I don't go to such places usually, but I have to get over that because this place was full of such interesting people. The Volvo Oberlin crafter crowd. I couldn't get enough. Beautiful... <laughs> Beautiful young women in their chic Minnesota woolens. Mary! <laughs> I was dying with envy and falling in love with everyone. Why do I have so much little interaction with this world? So nice, so cultured, so foodie friendly. Why can't I be a normal person? I want to be like these people. Saturday brunch with friends, everyone equal and happy and well-adjusted and having good jobs and having just graduated from excellent liberal arts colleges. Oh, I am such a mess compared to these people. But perhaps I am comparing my insides to their outsides, which is never recommended. Oh yeah, the gig. We sold out the theater, whatever it was, in the uptown section of Minneapolis. We packed it, kicked it, killed it. We were great. The people loved us. Then we hung out all night until the wee hours. Kirk Reed and I bowled. More beautiful kids hanging out on dates with friends, smoking cigarettes outside the club in their $400 marmo down coats. Maybe F. Scott, Fitzger F. Scott Fitzgerald's dreams are still alive here, despite the strange feeling at times that no matter how hard we bow, we are boats against the current borne back ceaselessly into the past. Day 34. Heading south again, trying to escape the snow and the bleakness, though I will forever hope to return to Minneapolis again to revisit the Seward Cafe because I think it changed my life. I think from now on I am going to become a partial foodie just because I realize that foodies are the most interesting diners and I'll put up with anything for good people watching. And as Michelle T. has said several times over the course of the trip, you don't want to be on the wrong side of history, meaning your little jealous, corrupted brain full of prejudices and preconceived notions and whatnot cannot always be trusted. So for now, my anti-foodism is officially retired. And so then this is the last thing. I am so glad I went on this tour. It was so fun and interesting in so many ways, and I will never forget my crew. What a great time. I am sad it's over, but I feel exhausted in a good way, in the best way. I left everything I had out there awesome. Thank you. Thank you so much, Blake Nelson.
If you are a wild fan of the book of Blake's book, Girl, being in the van with him was kind of like being in the van with Andrea from Girl. It's really cool. Um, so, you know, I think that um, Blake's essay alone is worth the price of this book. And, um, and there's so much more. Everyone you saw here tonight, and then there's more um, really great diary pieces. Um, there's one by Rihanna and Argo about our really ridiculous tour in Europe, which went very badly, so it makes a really great story. And um, there's uh, diary comics from Nicole J. George's, Christy Rhodes, and Mari Naomi. And there's pieces by Eileen Miles, and uh, Linnell Moise, and all kinds of people are in here, Ali Liebegott. So get the book, buy one for a friend, pass it around. Um, we're gonna be doing these little book parties all over the place, and so we're gonna be in San Francisco at City Lights on Wednesday night, so if you have friends in San Francisco, tell them to come see us. And thanks, Skylight, I love this bookstore so much. And we'll all stick around and sign your books if you desire such a thing. Let's get up for Michelle T, huh? Putting us all together, putting us all together, thank you. The whole Sister Spit crew. You've been listening to the Skylight Books author reading series. Don't forget that you can check out this and all of our other great podcasts at www.skylightbooks.com. Today's music was provided by Fragile Gang. You can check them out at MySpace, Facebook, and the iTunes Music Store. Thanks for stopping by, and we hope to see you soon.